From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President Sophia Thomas. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and to our patients. So what is Full Practice Authority, or FPA? As nurse practitioners, especially if you've been involved with AANP for any length of time, we hear those words thrown around quite often. But what really is FPA? What does it mean for you as a nurse practitioner, and how does it affect our patients and our ability to care for the people in our communities? Today, we welcome three distinguished guests to unpack this topic and offer some clarity on AANP's definition of full practice authority, how advocacy is put into practice, and ultimately, how this large statewide issue filters down to your day-to-day work. I'm so excited to welcome our guests today, two NP leaders who were instrumental in bringing FPA to their respective states, Mary Chesney and Susan Van Buge and AANP Vice President of State Government Affairs and a nurse practitioner herself, Tay Kapanos. Welcome to NP Pulse. Uh, Mary, Susan, and Tay, I'm so happy you've joined us today. Uh, Why don't you take a moment and introduce yourselves to our listeners? Thanks, Sophia. Hi, I'm Mary Chesney, and I'm a clinical professor at the University of Minnesota, where I teach in our Doctor of Nursing Practice program for all of our APRN students. I've been a pediatric nurse practitioner for over 35 years and have been devoted to working on advocacy for NP um, barriers and and NP practice uh, for a a good couple of decades now. During our 2013-2014 legislative campaign for full practice authority in Minnesota, uh, I served as the president and the lead advanced practice registered nurse volunteer lobbyist for our Minnesota APRN coalition uh, during our work at the state capitol to to enact FPA. Wonderful. Susan. Hi, I'm Susan Van Buge. I'm an associate professor in residence at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'm a family nurse practitioner in practice as well. And in 2013, I was part of a team and I had the role of legislative liaison when our state um, was able to achieve full practice authority. That was back in 2013. And um, I'm super excited to share some of the information that we learned from our work there. I'm looking forward to it as well. And Tay. Hello, I'm Tay Kapanis. I'm Vice President of State Government Affairs at AANP. I'm also a family nurse practitioner, and so every day it is my privilege and honor to advocate on behalf of all of AANP's members and their patients to get full and direct access to NP services. And Tay, you know, we're so happy to have you as VP of State Government Affairs. Your job encompasses literally the entire country, and I want us to unpack a little bit of of what is FPA and what the Uh, misperceptions and misconceptions are about it. But first, 
I'd like for you to share with us what is what's the job of, of state government affairs? I think a lot of people don't really understand. You know, um, this department was created in 2010 by the AAMP Board of Directors, specifically looking at how AAMP can remove and prevent barriers for NP-delivered care at the state level. Um, AAMP's work has never been just about advancing the profession or the NP role. It's always been about advancing the health of patients and removing unnecessary barriers that patients encounter when they're getting care. Um, to achieve that goal, um, we're working to create a healthcare system that works for our patients, nurse practitioners, and all members of the healthcare community. AAMP believes that this can be best achieved in three ways. One, by providing full and direct access to nurse practitioner services through updating and right-sizing regulations and state laws like state licensure and signature recognition for nurse practitioners. Number two, by um, ending healthcare inequities and ensuring that patients have access to the provider of their choice and that that care is paid for by their insurance pr provider. And finally, number three, um, AAMP is working to support having NPs in decision-making positions where their informed voices shape health policy, where they're leading in their institutions, and they're influencing the health policy agenda. Like I said, AAMP's State Government Affairs Office has been around since 2010. In the last 11 years, nine states and two territories have adopted full practice authority, and hundreds of states have formalized either state laws or regulation in support of nurse practitioners and their patients. Um, I'm glad to be joining the podcast today to talk about licensure, what it means, what its impact, and how we got here. And I'd like to add, uh, this is Susan, that, you know, AANP State Government Affairs Office was just key for us as we went through our full practice authority and, and hearing the introduction about that it started in 2010, it was key for us when we were working in 2011 and up till 13. So I'd like to just say how important that office was for us and how important it is still today. Susan, I totally agree. Uh, Tay, I can't say enough for the help you and your office provided for us during our 2013 and 2014 legislative campaign, just whether it was a talking strategy, bill language, uh, just in so many ways, uh, you were instrumental in helping us pass legislation in our state. So thank you. Well, you are welcome. I would, I would tag on to that, that I think every nurse practitioner in every state in the country has their fingerprints on the legislative and regulatory environment. What happens in one state impacts another state and impacts the region. And so we have taken lessons that we've learned from restrictive states like Texas and Florida, and we've applied them in North Dakota and Nevada and Minnesota, and most recently in Massachusetts to help those patients secure better access to nurse practitioners. So it truly is a team effort by NPs across the country to move this forward. Absolutely. And you know, right now we know the demand for healthcare is really at an all-time high at a time when we know there is going to be a, a provider workforce shortage uh, by the year uh, 2025. Uh, today, NPs, as you said, are licensed in all 50 states, and, and we have full practice authority now in 23 states, plus a couple of U.S. territories, um, VA healthcare services, et cetera. Um, to meet the need of these patients, we really need to expand patient access to high quality care. And, and that includes care provided by nurse practitioners. And we know that when healthcare markets are open and consumers have a choice of provider, as well as 
adequate access to care, consumers benefit from lower costs, better care, and more innovation. And so to that note, Tay, I'd like to, to ask you and for you to explain to us, what is FPA? Um, why is it important to nurse practitioners? You know, I think I'm going to start with the first, the second part of that question, Sophia, is why is it so important to nurse practitioners? Um, it's important to nurse practitioners because it means that they can bring all of their skills, all of their knowledge to every patient visit every day in any setting and any encounter. And that makes care go better. Um, it ensures that we don't have barriers to care, delays in care, increased costs when nurse practitioners aren't able to bring their very best to every encounter. Full practice authority is a description for the statewide policy related to NP licensure. So it doesn't apply to just one NP in the state, it applies to every NP. In states that AAMP categorizes as full practice, every NP in the state in any setting and in any patient encounter is able to diagnose, treat, manage, and prescribe for their patient without the requirement of a regulatory board outside of nursing. For example, um, some of the criteria that would keep a state from being full practice authority, because we're asked this from time to time at AAMP, is if a state specifically called out a population of NPs and required them to maintain collaboration and supervisory agreements. So if a state only authorized, say, primary care NPs or NPs that practice in hospitals or physician-linked settings, those states wouldn't meet full practice criteria. If a state limited the ability of an NP to provide specific care to a patient, such as prescribing benzodiazepines, um, writing Schedule II medications, treating um, substance abuse disorder, those states would also not meet the criteria for full practice authority. And any state that requires some sort of joint oversight um, or investigation or approval of regulation or discipline by a nurse practitioner, by another disciplinary board like the Board of Medicine, those states wouldn't qualify for full practice authority. The AAMP definition really is, into, really is geared to ensure that any state that meets that criteria legislators, policymakers, the public, patients understand that nurse practitioners in those states are able to bring their best skill and can clearly diagnose, treat, manage, and prescribe for their patients. So it's really, it's being able to practice to the top of our education and training without any regulatory restrictions, without any conditions on that licensure. Absolutely, Sophia. And at the end of the day, it's truly that ability to bring your best to everyday patient care that ensures that we are able to meet healthcare needs across the states and end some of that geographic disparity that we see. In states that require NPs to have these agreements, um, we find that NPs tend to concentrate more in areas where there are physician practices because that's where those agreements are able to be obtained. Absolutely. And but even in those areas, if a nurse practitioner is practicing in a, in a physician group, which most in, in nurse practitioners do, if if they're what we call here in Louisiana, my collaborating physician passes away, that nurse practitioner is unable to practice until another collaborative physician is uh, found and, and then approved by the Board of Nursing, which can take sometimes a couple of months. So those patients go without access to care during the time period that the nurse practitioner is unable to practice. Yeah, and that story is not unique. Um, we were um, talking to some of our colleagues in Texas last week, and there was um, a primary care practice in rural Texas that employed two nurse practitioners um, and had one physician. 
um, the physician um, ended up having a health care crisis and had to step away from the practice and wasn't able to see patients. And they had to scramble to find a physician to take on that practice and meet those state regulatory requirements. Um, otherwise, they would have had several thousand patients not getting access to care. So, Tay, when we talk about full practice authority, a lot of people um, equilibrate that somehow to uh, increasing the scope of practice for nurse practitioners. And that's just not the case, is it? No, absolutely not. In all, as you mentioned earlier, in all 50 states, D.C., um, and in the U.S. territories, NPs are authorized by law to diagnose, treat, and prescribe for their patients. Full practice authority is just the authorization to provide those services. And as you had mentioned, in states where that authorization is directly to the clinician through the Board of Nursing, we see states have more access to care, lower costs of care, and standards of care and outcomes of care are the same. And so what we're working on at AAMP is to level the playing field and end that patchwork. So it doesn't matter where a patient lives, their access to care is consistent in all 50 states, D.C. and territories. Exactly. And so, um, Mary, let's, let's talk about your experience. You're in Minnesota, right? That's right. And so tell us about your um, journey with Minnesota and full practice authority. Sure. Um, in, on May 13th of 2014, it was really exciting to have Governor Dayton sign our Minnesota full practice authority bill. Um, and this was granting full practice authority not only to nurse practitioners in our state, but actually all of the four roles of advanced practice registered nurses. And our bill language was really based on the consensus model for APRN regulation. Our law became effective for all of us on January 1st of 2015. I think uh, one important aspect to talk about is that, you know, this wasn't an overnight um, successful legislative campaign. Uh, many of us had worked for many years, and I know there are many listeners out there who are working in the trenches and have done so for quite some time. And I guess my advice is to hang in there and be persistent uh, because it took us a number of years to get to a successful legislative campaign. Um, we, based on a uh, failed campaign for full practice authority in 2009, we actually developed the uh, Minnesota APRN coalition and really a long range plan for trying to get to that point where we could all practice and have authorization from our state and directly from our board of nursing. So clearly legislative success isn't, as you said, an oversight process. And I know many states have put forth bills which got amended, eventually pulled when language became too restrictive, et cetera. And other states have made incremental changes to their practice legislation, but perhaps not all the way to FPA. But those incremental changes should be celebrated as well. The goal is to remove really archaic regulatory barriers in language that is upwards of 50 years old in many cases. So what are some lessons you learned along the way? Um, a lesson that we learned in previous failures was to take the time needed to lay down some important groundwork. So really prior to our campaign, we spent a number of years educating legislators, developing legislative relationships, um, and really getting our coalition group in front of any group interested in our state to increasing and improving access to care for our citizens. You bring up some great points. As you said earlier, this doesn't happen overnight. It is important to be organized, to build a coalition, and to speak with one voice. What did you do there in Minnesota? During our work, as we prepared to bring the bill forward, we built a broad coalition, multi-stakeholders, 
Um, this included patient advocacy groups. Uh, it included um, other nursing organizations in our state. We included uh, other uh, not-for-profit ab advocacy groups, such as Minnesota Chapter of National Alliance on Mental Illness and the Minnesota Association of Community Health Centers, as well as uh, a group that really represented a, large, a lot of the larger insured companies, such as Target and 3M in our state, and were interested in decreasing healthcare costs and, and increasing ac access to care. We um, were definitely, uh, as we went forward at, in the legislature in 2013 and 2014, we made our case that we were definitely not interested, nor our legislators uh, ever interested for that matter, in making this a turf battle between physician colleagues and the APRN group. We really appreciate and respect our physician colleagues. Absolutely. And unfortunately, we see this so often that it becomes very adversarial and negative when opposition presents arguments against these bills. It really shouldn't be like that. At the end of the day, it's so important to work together on behalf of patients and access to care. How did you make the case? We simply made the case that we were seeking to remove outdated burdensome requirements that were really limiting our ability to fully practice, to meet the demands and the need for care in our state, and was really limiting access to care. And at the time that we passed legislation, we were among uh, the most restricted states in terms of needing physician oversight, both to prescribe and to practice as well. So we introduced our bill in 2013. We kept our focus squarely on Minnesota citizens' right to healthcare access and choice of provider. At the time, Minnesota was facing serious current and pending shortages. Uh, we already had many, many um, health care provider shortage areas for primary care and for mental health. And our legislature had passed in early 2013 Medicaid expansion and Minnesota's health insurance exchange. So we knew that hundreds of thousands more um, newly insured people were going to be coming into our health care system in Minnesota. Um, so we felt like that was a big impetus and a uh, point of um, in important point to note at the legislature. What would you say were keys to your success that year? Um, I would say that one of the, the keys to our success is that we really have always had Minnesota a really good relationship between our coalition and the Board of Nursing. Um, and our Board of Nursing really saw passing full practice authority based on that regulatory model for the APR and consensus model as being very critical to the state's ability to regulate safe practice, uh, protect the public, and, and set some standardized um, system in place. Our goal throughout our legislative work really was to be truthful, informative, data-driven, credible, and respectful at all times, and that really served us well at the Capitol. We developed a structured and highly disciplined internal and external communication plan so that we would speak with one voice. Uh, we centralized all press and PR communication, and we set up a robust uh, emailing system using the Board of Nursing's uh, APRN list. We also really developed, I think, a, a robust grassroots plan, which helped us pass this legislation and reach our legislative representatives in both the uh, House and the Senate in our state. Um, and we just continued to, to press that point that access to quality, safe, affordable health care is a bipartisan issue. 
Uh, so we really fully engaged with legislators from both sides of the aisle, which led to our ultimate success. Absolutely. Access to affordable, quality health care truly is a bipartisan issue. You hit the nail on the head. What have been some of the impacts of FPA on Minnesota's health care since the bill was passed? What I can say is since we've passed Full Practice Authority in Minnesota, there's been some really nice um, things that have happened as a result of that. Uh, the number of APRNs in Minnesota shot up from 6,100 in 2014 to over 9,000 practicing APRNs in our state, um, which represents a 31% increase. Um, the NPs in our state, our number, um, we, we comprise 66% of our workforce. One really important trend we've seen since passing this legislation is that we, our workforce since 2014 is getting younger overall with an influx of many new, younger nurse practitioners wanting to practice in our state. And that was really uh, important to address because we had at the time we practiced this legislation, our workforce was really aging and we had concerns about that. So that's been a really nice development. Uh, we've seen an increase in APRNs who own or co-own their own practice from very few at, in 2014 to about 4.8% of APRNs or about 424 APRNs in our state. Uh, my uh, school that I work at, the University of Minnesota, has opened three nurse practitioner-led clinics in our state. Um, and I think the other important thing to note is that many nurse practitioners continue to practice in team settings with physician colleagues. So there really wasn't a disruption in teamwork uh, because of our legislation, as had been predicted by some of the organized physician uh, organizations who opposed our legislation at the time. I think really most importantly, uh, the sky didn't fall. We didn't see a big uptick in problems or percentage of malpractice claims in Minnesota upon passing full practice authority. Uh, so since that time, we've just continued as a coalition to work on cleaning up some outdated statutory language and passing ability to sign off on various things in state statute. But I, I really think that there's been um, a, a real increase in satisfaction as well on one recent survey in Minnesota for NPs and other APRNs practicing in our state because we got rid of some of the barriers that were getting in their way. Um, Tay, and you were involved in this, right? You know, I was, and I think, you know, um, I'm really excited for where Minnesota has gone. And I think it's a testament that we see in other states of once we clear this licensure hurdle, there are so many more opportunities for um, medicine and nursing on a larger corporate scale to intersect in, around legislation and healthcare and really make some reforms and changes that are beneficial for patients. One of the things that stood out to me um, as Mary was talking was, you know, the root of where this com came from and all the foundational efforts that she had to do. And I think um, for listeners in the podcast, you know, I think it's important to note that the root of this problem actually began in the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, our country started regulating healthcare disciplines for the first time. And the first healthcare discipline to be regulated was the discipline of medicine. And as a result, the language in these medical practice acts is extremely broad. For example, some of the language um, in some of the early states reads, you know, the practice of medicine is the practice by anyone who diagnoses or attempts to diagnose, anyone who treats or attempts to treat, anyone who professes to treat any human condition physical, mental, perceived, or real is the, is the practice of medicine. And so basically, those early 1900 Medical Practice Acts said 
anything within the universe of healthcare equaled the practice of medicine. And so as we had other health disciplines come along and be regulated, there was this friction point of what was defined as medicine became the universe of medicine and any other health discipline had to act like they were providing a carve out of those services. And really, um, that's not a reflection of where we are. It's definitely not a reflection as we are um, in the year 2021 moving forward. We now know that healthcare disciplines have overlapping fundamental knowledge and skill, and that certain services are not the owned property of one discipline or another. And it is in fact that overlap between nursing, pharmacy, medicine, behavioral health, um, physical therapy, it's that overlap of sheer knowledge that actually makes us a stronger, more robust healthcare system and ensuring that everyone can practice at the top of their education and experience and knowledge and not need to get permission from another discipline really helps our healthcare system basically just take better care of patients. And it's not just nurse practitioners or the nursing profession. Um, Like I had mentioned, there's outdated pharmacy law, outdated law around psychologists, physical therapists, and other providers that those really rooted 1900s early licensure laws are standing in the way. And so what we're really looking to do here is modernize so that these licensure laws reflect people's current ability so we can build on that and enjoy some changes to improve access to care. Absolutely. And that's the most important thing is is everybody practicing at the top of their education and training. And there is an overlap now. And healthcare and medicine has evolved. And we have all kinds of new providers out there that there, there weren't in years past and certainly in the early 1900s. I mean, in the early 1900s, did they ever think of a pharmacist? Well, first they had to develop a pharmacist, but did they think a pharmacist would be giving you your flu vaccine? There was a time when only a physician could give a vaccine. And then now we had nurses doing it and, and most recently pharmacists. And so that's been great in the deployment of, of COVID-19 vaccines this year. Um, now, Susan, you know, um, uh, Mary had mentioned that uh, about 4% of, of APRNs opened up their own clinics, about 400 NPs um, in Minnesota after their FPA bill passed. If I'm not mistaken, in, in Nevada, didn't the legislators want to see NPs opening clinics? Um, talk about your your FPA journey. Yeah, Sophia, thanks for having me on and to um, be part of this great discussion. I was reflecting on what Mary was saying and so many of the things that she had as experiences when they were going through this in Minnesota were many of the same things that we went through as well. So I think it's always great being able to talk to people uh, who have gone through this because these experiences are kind of the same in different places that we go. Uh, But you are correct, Sophia, in that the legislature was really interested in seeing how many NPs would go out and open up their own practices. They were kind of fixed on that and have been for several years. So I'll get to that part. But let me talk to you a little bit about a little bit about our journey. Our full practice authority was passed in the 2013 legislature session, and um, our governor signed the bill on June 3rd of 2013, and it went into effect July 1st of 2013. Wow. So it was. Pretty fast. And and I think even the Board of Nursing was going, oh, my goodness, here we go. Uh, so that was a pretty quick, uh, quick timing. Um, but we, it, it went through. But it wasn't, you know, all roses and sunshine. It was a lot of hard work and it took a lot of years. And Nevada is unique, is one of those unique states that only their legislature only meets every other year. And so and it's a short session, 120 days every other year. So 
a lot of the work that is done for any session is done uh, in those interims, you know, all the groundwork, all the, the uh, getting your grass works and, and talking uh, to legislators and getting work done. So that's when that happened. But we did have a bill that went, uh, a bill draft request was made in the 2011 legislative session and was pulled before it could ever be written into a bill. And uh, that was uh, quite a quite a moment. I'm sure that Tay remembers that because she got panicked phone calls. And I think we had a big meeting with oh, her yes. at the time because we I were also- I think I remember the hotel lobby I was in at the time. Yes. yes. I think there were tears and crying and, and all kinds of stuff. But, um, and so it was a disappointing moment. I'm going to tell you that. However, what we needed to do is to sit down and say, what do we need to do from here? Right? Because this is what happened. So, um, and, and we did something that was similar to, uh, Mary in Minnesota is that our group at that time, the nurse practitioners were kind of, uh, with our Nevada nurses association with the bigger nursing group in the state. And we felt like there were some things that we just needed to kind of pull up our boots and be on our own. We figured we had enough n- numbers and people and leaders that we really needed to be uh, have some autonomy. So we created our own group, and and that really empowered us to start making our decisions, uh, kind of creating our own leadership, creating our own group. It was a lot of work to do that, but I think that that was really the right decision for us. And I think it empowered us as a group of nurse practitioners in our state. And so, um, you know, it, it was funny because we started our new group in 2012, January of 2012. And by June of 2013, we had accomplished our first yeah. grow, uh, you know, what we wanted to do. That was the reason we came together. So we felt pretty proud of that. So, Susan, what happened during the 2013 session nearly eight years ago? Um, so... During that session, there were actually three things that we accomplished. Uh, we did uh, gain full practice authority, which was not having the formal written collaborative agreement that was required by a nurse practitioner in our state. But we also achieved having, uh, at the time, we only were issued a certificate of recognition. We did not have a license to practice in the state of Nevada. We had a certificate of recognition. And that was a big that was a big deal, right? That was a big deal. And Tay talked a little bit about having license and what that means and um, how that important that is to regulation. So we were able to change a, a certificate of recognition to an actual license. And then the third thing that we were able to achieve is that we changed our name from advanced practice nurse to advanced practice registered nurse, APRN. So APN to APRN. And believe it or not, that was the stickiest point of all the things that we were looking for, those three small things, that was the stickiest one and caused the most discussion in all of the legislative sessions and the most feedback from the nurses and the nurse practitioners in our state. Who knew? I thought other things would be a much bigger problem, but it was the name change from APN to APRN. And still to this day, I have people say, I just thought that was a terrible idea. Um, and so I, I don't, I'm not sure what that was about, but, uh, those were the big problems. So what did we do? You know, we worked really closely with the AAMP government affairs office. And I don't say that to make it a plug. What I say that for is because they were, they really had a pulse on what was going on in the country and they could come in as people that from the outside that 
really didn't um, have any preconceived notions. They didn't have all the emotion wrapped up in what we were doing. They were just able to give us a very thoughtful you know, feedback on what we were working on. So an and objective it, it, viewpoint. It was objective, right? Yeah. It was very objective. And sometimes when we were, I felt like we were, you know, right on the edge of our uh, sanity and our everything else, they were just able to come in and just say, all right, let's look at this from a different perspective. And so I appreciated that a lot. And they helped us a lot with our, just a lot of different things. But I think the most important things, you know, what did we do to get ready for this? We had to identify a legislator and a champion or two, or as many as you can, that will be on your side. Our first, uh, when we had our bills in the 2013 session, we actually had two bills that were put forward. One came from the health committee and one came from the assembly. So we had two bills and obviously just one of those passed. uh, So we had two of those. We had to look at your stakeholders. Uh, You have to get a good lobbyist because that's super important. And we had a very difficult time finding a lobbyist. Um, But the person that finally we we agreed upon and, and worked with was someone who had never worked with nurse practitioners before and um, said, oh, this will be kind of fun. I don't realize, I don't think they realized uh, how much fun it was actually going to be. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was it was great. And there's still the firm that um, represents the nurse practitioners in the state. It's so important to evolve and engage our grassroots NPs, even if it just means sending a letter or calling their elected leaders. And many people want to volunteer. We really ask people to help. Uh, and I think you have to go back to the saying that says, many hands make light work. So when people want to volunteer and they want to help, give them a job, give them something to do um, and make sure that you let them do what they would like to do and what they're good at, right? Some people are really good at researching articles and putting together bibliographies. Some people are great at writing and some people are your great speakers, right? They're the ones that want to get out there in front of everybody and do things. And so you so, really engaged your grassroots. Oh, yeah. And engage the members and the people that want to help. And um, also, uh, you know, we had to reach out to different organizations and and get and see where they were at, because not everybody is supportive and positive about this. So you want to know the people that are positive, but you also want to know the people why they maybe aren't as in favor of this and why and see if you can answer some of the questions that go with those whys and maybe why they're not. But the people who were really supportive for us, uh, AARP was very supportive. They had people in the audience with us when we were testifying, the Alzheimer's Association. But I will agree with Mary as well. The Board of Nursing was super important. Um, We really had to you know, be respectful of the role that they play. They're the regulators. You know, if we're if we are working with a legislator to um, to propose language to change a law, then that language has to be something that the board of nursing is going to be able to regulate, and if they can do that or not. And so, uh, we never agreed or made a change in any word unless there was you know, having that conversation back and making sure that we were all uh, working together to that same end. doesn't mean that they were passing this bill. It just means that you can't put language in something that they can't do and regulate. That they can't carry out, yeah. Exactly. And so it was a good, respectful relationship. And I think that that was really key and important. Um, And they were also respected because the legislature members would call them and say, so they're proposing this. Is this something that you really, you all can do? Is this something that 
Is it going to cost you money? Is it, you know, what, what are all the, the impacts? But our message was plain and simple. You know, we, uh, we also, during that time, were looking at the Affordable Care Act. And our state had um, uh, gone into um, enacting the Medicaid expansion. And so all of a sudden, 2014, January 1st, 2014, we knew that everyone needed to be enrolled with a primary care provider. And we were attending these meetings with the state, and it was just doomsday prediction. How are we going to do this? We're not going to have enough primary care providers to take care of all of the people entrusted to our care. And so we became a solution to that. We became part of a solution. And we worked with the lawmakers and with stakeholders to to, to demonstrate that and that we could be part of that solution. And um, we we looked at this policy window as an opportunity to share what we do as a profession and how we can be part of that solution. So in being the profession that wanted to be a part of the solution, how did you handle it? We uh, had to determine our message and we stayed on message. And I think that one of the things that we were told when this was all done and over with, we were um, given kudos by many different legislators and groups for the way that we conducted ourselves. We were always positive. We, were, we never called anyone names. We were never negative. Even when we were sitting in hearings and people were sitting in front of us calling us names. I mean, I remember being in one of the hearings and a, legislate, a, a, a person who was testifying, uh, who was opposed to what we were working on, um, she, she made some comments about per, a person who had previously testified about their practice and it was from the heart. And this person was so negative mean. and so yeah. mean and made a personal attack about this nurse practitioner who had shared something that was so important, um, that when that, when that person testifying was finished, the chair of the committee said she would not tolerate that kind of behavior from anyone to say that kind of use that kind of language about any other profession. So we didn't do that. We stayed positive. Keep it positive. We, stayed, we kept it good. We kept it above the board. There were times where we wanted to go, oh my goodness, but we didn't do that. We just stayed positive and we kept it moving forward. You have to keep it professional always. Always, um, always. So Susan, it sounds like what you did was um, you got a plan, you engaged your grassroots, you engaged your stakeholders, you kept it positive, and um, you had the, the evidence and the data there. We did indeed. And we just kept working through. And some of the big things for us were, you know, there was a small group of us that really kind of were managing all of this. There was actually just three of us. And we all had, we kind of assigned different uh, things that we were going to do throughout the, the uh uh, the, the, the session. And, uh, and we stayed true to those. One person was assigned just to the legislative folks and the lobbyist. And one person was assigned to do all of the national work, which was me. And my job was to testify. And then the other person, he just wrote and researched and everything else. And we all kind of overlapped as well, but we also met very often and, uh, kept each other in, in touch with everything that was going on. Um, but I think that what was important is in the end, you know, we worked together, we, um, we kept in close communication and, you know, like I said, we stayed positive 
And uh, we stayed engaged with that, with our board of nursing contacts so that we were all making sure we were on the right, uh, on the same sheet of paper. Um, I will say that some of the positives, what, what, what are the positives that came out? Well, in Nevada, we have seen our nurse practitioner numbers go from uh, 924 in 2013 when this passed to 2,872. So that's a 210% increase in nurse practitioners in our state in eight Quite years. Impressive. It's pretty yeah. amazing. And I and think you said, Susan, that you guys were keeping tabs on where some of these NPs were, were migrating in from. We have. And so um, that... What we found in our research is that 85% of those coming into our state who are licensed nurse practitioners already, 85% of them are coming from states that don't have full practice authority. So, um, so you know, if you build it, they will come. Yeah, and it's a way to improve access to healthcare for people there it in Nevada. Is. It is, and it's a place where people want to come and practice. They don't see the uh, encumbrances um, they see that they can come and provide care, they can open a practice, and uh, they can practice to the full extent of their licensure and education. And so it becomes a state that is, um, you know, that, that looks uh, interesting and good and a place that they want to live and be with their families and to provide that care that they've been educated to do. So now we're seeing even more and more BSN prepared nurses from our rural areas in our in our state coming in to uh, get nurse practitioner education. And so we're seeing the increase not only in the urban areas, which you expect, but also in our rural communities. We're seeing more and more um, nurse practitioners who can provide care uh, in those communities. Exactly. So those are the, the people who are bachelor's prepared nurses living in a community, living in a rural community, wanting to um, go back to school to become nurse practitioners, get educated and trained and then remain in their community in that rural community to be able to provide care to that community, yes. improving access to care. Exactly. And I have one great story. If you will indulge me to tell you this story, this uh, we have a nurse practitioner that came to our university who is from a rural community about two to two and a half hours out of Las Vegas. So it's far enough out that uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a drive for patients to come in here for care. And she uh, it was a BSM prepared nurse, came to school to earn her, um, her degree to become a nurse practitioner and was working with one of the primary care physicians in the community. There was only one. And the plan was is that she would she would uh, become a family nurse practitioner, and that his plan was maybe a decade down the road that he was going to be retiring. And they did their own succession planning for healthcare in their small community that is really rural Nevada. And so she came to school and a wonderful nurse practitioner in the community. She can finishes school, and three months after she graduates, that physician passed away unexpectedly. And oh, now gosh. she is the sole practitioner in that community. And um, and she's done a wonderful job. And she's got her own practice and she's doing her own thing out there. And she's just really uh, risen to the occasion and um, drawn on all of her resources that she can and all the folks that she knows here in the city in both directions, uh, uh, north and south of Nevada. But just done a wonderful job and really just shown the testament of how she 
you know, she's professionally trained and can, and can fill those needs for her community. But Susan, that's what's so important that you, you just nailed the, hit the nail on the head with, um, without FPA, without full practice authority in Nevada, that community would, would be without a healthcare provider. And if she were a nurse practitioner, you know, practicing and had to have a, a written collaborative practice or supervis, supervisory, um, practice language contract with a physician, um, if he if he passed away, she's unable to re- render care. Uh, for me in Louisiana, in a restricted pac- practice state, I'm required to have a collaborative practice agreement with a physician. If my collaborator uh, passes away, um, moves away, et cetera, I'm unable to practice and my patients uh, go without a health care provider. So uh, for that very reason, um, uh, that you you showed. I've I've known other nurse practitioners who've uh, had a collaborative physician uh, pass away, and they're unable to practice at that point. It, so that's a great example. You are one hundred percent correct. She would be would have not been able to practice at all, and had to have found someone to uh, to ha- enter into a collaborative agreement to go back to providing care. So makes a great point there. Yeah, that was a compelling argument in Minnesota as well. Um, We have so many mental health shortage areas, but it's particularly acute in some of our exurban and rural areas. And we had example after example where as psych mental health NP or psych mental health CNS who could prescribe and manage medications for patients and have a patient panel um, where they had to pay, number one, to have uh, some physician be their, their collaborating physician and sign on to their prescribing agreement. Um, to practice in a rural area, for example. And then we had situations where in one case, a, a physician had had a severe stroke and was no longer able um, to work. In another, uh, we had a physician who died in a car accident. And in those kinds of circumstances, sometimes those people were managing caseloads of two to three to 400 patients in a rural area. And suddenly those, those patients had nowhere to go um, because it stopped the practice of those people. And in some cases, it took some of these practitioners three, four, five months to find other replacement uh, physician to collaborate with them. So that was a really compelling argument for particularly rural legislators who realized that that was not the way to uh, provide care for people, and particularly when we have such mental health needs in our state. Well, and it's not an it's not an anomaly. I mean, it's that's um, right. You know, unexpected passing, health issues, but it's also retirement and sharing practices. Uh Um, There was a nurse practitioner in Missouri who owned her own practice and who was providing care. And the physician who was providing the supervisory collaborative agreement in the state sold his practice and and merged with a larger health network who determined their employees could only be in collaborative supervisory agreements with NPs within that same healthcare system. So as a result, that rural clinic closed down. So it's not just one-off, you know, outlying stories. This is consistently um, a place where the legal permission for someone to practice their profession, being bottlenecked to the permission of someone from an outside discipline, really does hinder our ability to provide care. And the stories that you guys have shared really bear their facts out in the data. Um, Arizona retired their requirement for physician collaboration um, 
in the early 2000s. And within five years, their state saw a 25% increase of the NPs working in that state after they passed that. And more than 75% of that increase was in nurse practitioners providing care in rural and underserved communities. So Susan, if I can borrow from you um, and the field of dreams, if you build it, if you change it, they will come. And we're finding more nurse practitioners are voting with their feet on where they're going to live and work um, based on those state practice environments. Well, and I think, Tay, you make a really good point there. When you're trying to make your case to uh, a legislature about uh, passing full practice authority, uh, the example of Arizona was one that we used. We utilized uh, their data because uh, it was compelling and just demonstrated to them the hard numbers. This is what they, this is what Arizona did. They passed full practice authority and this is the outcome. This is what they saw. Um, and so it's if you're working on this as a state and you're thinking about how can we go forward, there are examples that states can provide for you. And so you just need to mine that data and demonstrate that because I think the numbers speak for themselves. So, Tay, I think this was a great summary, and I think it, it answered a lot of questions for a lot of people. You, you speak so eloquently, so I appreciate that. Um, I want you to give me three takeaways that our listeners can can take as, as we're leaving this segment so, um, so they have a full understanding. You know, I think the three biggest takeaways for NPs that are looking at policy is to remember that you are the policy expert. Every day, your practice intersects with healthcare policy and patient care. Nobody knows more about what healthcare law and regulations mean to your patient than the NP who's practicing um, at the clinic, at the bedside with them. We need to remember as we're looking at policy that policy has impacts in multiple settings. So when nurse practitioners are looking at a piece of legislation or regulation to determine what does this mean to nurse practitioners and our ability to care for patients, we really need to think more broadly and think about how that policy is going to impact not just our practice, but NPs who are working in the hospital, NPs who own their own business, NPs who work in rural settings or underserved settings, and NPs who work in the suburbs and their patients. So policy really needs to be thought of in that broad lens of across the board, how is this policy going to impact healthcare delivery in our state? The other thing that I think is important is to remember is that healthcare policy is about the future. And when we're looking at healthcare policy, especially for nurse practitioners who've been in practice for numerous years and are established in their career, um, we find that there is a propensity, as with everyone, to view policy through the lens of what does it mean to me individually? And we're really encouraging nurses who are engaging in broader policy conversations to look at what does this mean for the future? What does this mean for our profession and patient care a year from now, three years from now, five years from now? When it comes to state licensure laws, we're finding many of them are on the books for several decades. So we really need to be mindful, not just about fixing policy problems of today, but how do we position legislation to ensure that we have the healthcare profession that we need to meet 21st century healthcare needs into the decades? And then my final takeaway is your voice matters. Every NP voice matters and you have stories to tell. Every day your practice intersects with patient care and it's that experience of what happens with your patients and policy that really informs and makes a difference. AAMP, our state nurse practitioner organizations are forever bringing evidence and policy research to the forefront and discussing that with policymakers. 
The stories that NPs can tell about their experience of where policy meets patient care is really the face on that skeleton of the evidence. Um, I think some of the most informative and compelling reasons to engage in policy actually came to me because of our colleagues. One of the first meetings that I was in with AAMP um, was more than a decade ago, but there was a nurse practitioner who was talking about how a mammogram report for a patient with an abnormal mammogram never made it back to her office, and it took several months to track it down because the radiology center was not putting the name of the ordering nurse practitioner on, but their collaborating physician who didn't work in the same office. So every time that abnormal result went out to that collaborating physician, they sent it back to the radiology center saying, this isn't our patient, you need to make sure it gets to the right place. And so it's those individual stories and glitches that are compelling and say what we're doing isn't working and we need to make sure that our policy matches the practice and that patients get access to timely accessible care. Absolutely. It's it, the most important thing in the whole equation is the patient. And so, Tay, I thank you for summarizing this podcast so well. And as I said, you're so eloquent. So I thank you so much. All, all three of you, um, we could talk about this for hours. I mean, there are so many great examples of of FPA and success stories and the way NPs improve access to healthcare for patients across the board. And um, you know, from coast to coast. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, so I want to thank you all for joining us today on NP Pulse. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much to all of our guests today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and learning a bit more about FPA. For anyone interested in learning more about NP advocacy, it's not too late to register for the 2021 AANP Health Policy Conference. This conference is going 100% online for 2021, so claim your spot now to access all of the great sessions for two full weeks to learn about the legislative issues impacting you and your patients. Gain the skills you need to be an advocate for the NP role. Conference access begins February 25th, 2021. Also, be sure to check out AANP's state advocacy resources for fact sheets, policy maps, the state policy tracker tool, and so much more. Links are listed in the description in this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm.